And whether it's six months before we're back to more a normal or 12 months, that's very difficult. It's going to be a gradual process, that's for sure. Welcome to the Leiden Bioscience Park podcast, where we talk about what the organizations in Leiden do to beat COVID. From vaccines to food, we discuss it all. The different initiatives right here in this podcast. My name is Joop van der Neerbeemt and with me is Hans Stanke, now retired, but a renowned scientist in the field of molecular cell biology at the Leiden University Medical Center. Together, we will interview scientists, entrepreneurs, and innovators. We won't stop asking questions until we've found out what COVID is exactly, what it does to our bodies, and what our guests are doing to battle this pandemic. In today's episode, we talk about one of the reasons why COVID is so harmful to some patients, whereas it could be nearly harmless for others. Hans, would you be so kind as to introduce our first guest, we are very pleased to have Peter Himstra. Peter is a professor of respiratory cell biology and immunology. He heads the research group of the Department of Pulmonology. We are very pleased to have him today because he has done research for many, many years on the function and malfunction of the lungs. Uh, he has studied um, diseases like asthma and he is an excellent candidate to hear more about the things that happen in the lung when COVID strikes. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Hans. So, Peter, this is not the first disease that is coming over here from, from Asia. Earlier we had SARS, but we've also had MERS. Could you tell me a little bit about how COVID is similar to these diseases and also where does it differ? Yes, uh, yeah, that's a very relevant uh, question to ask. Of course, these are all coronaviruses. And um, of course, coronaviruses are known as viruses that cause, for instance, relatively mild symptoms of the common cold, but also uh, uh, SARS and MERS and uh, COVID-19, which is caused by uh, SARS-CoV-2, are examples of uh, um, respiratory tract infections caused by uh, coronavirus. So what makes it special? It's, it's, it's apparently highly contagious and in selected subjects, it causes very severe disease. So that's, that's what makes it very uh, special. So it's very infectious and therefore a lot of people get infected. And that's a major difference with SARS and MERS. Can you tell us Peter, about the transmission of COVID-19. Um, for instance, what is very remarkable is some people get worse symptoms and other people hardly get any symptoms. And, and actually, what symptoms are we talking about? Yeah, of course, the, the spectrum of, of, uh, of symptoms is, is, is quite variable. Uh, of course, it's uh, uh, symptoms of the, of the common cold with sneezing. It's people that develop uh, uh, a fever, people that develop uh, uh, chest tightness or so shortness of breath, people that lost a sense of, of smell. Uh, and so there's really a wide spectrum of, uh, uh, of symptoms, depending very much on, this, on the severity of the disease. And therefore, it's probably important to realize that 
we think that initially what is infected is the mucosa, so the surface of the upper airways, for instance, that cover the nose, right? And that's where probably the virus initially hits. And then for some reason, in some people, it spreads to the lower airways, to the lung. And there, it apparently causes severe disease in, again, a selected subject. So it's, it's really a wide spectrum of symptoms that people experience upon infection. There are so many diseases where you have similar symptoms. So if I ask you whether there is one specific symptom that is absolutely specific for COVID, the answer probably is there isn't. Is that correct? So that's that's indeed a problem. I mean, like like in May, it's usually the season of hay fever, right? And sometimes uh, uh, some of the symptoms of hay fever are also comparable to the symptoms that people have in in the initial stages of uh, of COVID nineteen. So so that that's really an issue. That uh, so that's why there's now also an intensive search for alternative methods to aid to the diagnosis of, of COVID-19. So, for instance, in, in our department, together with several other groups in the Netherlands, we're looking at, for instance, the analysis of exhale breath. I heard you say exhale breath. Does that mean um, that you test the lung capacity of the, the patient, that they have to exhale, actually exhale breath, and that you can measure that? Or am I understanding this incorrectly? No, so, so so what is done basically, and this is a technique that uh, was pioneered uh, by people like uh, Peter Sterk from the University of Amsterdam, in which you basically, you look for what we call volatile organic compounds that are present in your exhale breath. And uh, you, uh, you have a measure, to, uh, uh, a way to measure the composition of those volatile uh, uh, organic compounds. And um, so for some infections that has been used and can be used to sort of differentiate a little bit between people with and without lung cancer, with and without other diseases, but also with infection. So the study that is now ongoing in various centers, including the LEMC, is trying to see whether that can be uh, used to also define those patients that are more likely to have SARS-CoV-2 infections or the virus that causes COVID-19 or those that may not have it so that you would not need to test. You were talking about the mucosa, that the virus initiates in the mucosa system or in mucosa cells. I don't recall exactly how you, how you mentioned it. Uh, can you talk, talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah. yeah so so if, we, if we look at our respiratory tract, right, we inhale air. And our airways, they guide the airs towards the alveoli, which are the air sacs. And that's actually where gas exchange occurs. So, uh, but both the air sacs, the alveoli, and the respiratory tract, the airways, those are covered by a line, a, a series of cells that uh, are very specialized. And those are called the epithelial cells. And if you look along the respiratory tract, they differ dependent on sort of the anatomical location. Meaning that if you compare a nasal epithelial cell from the nose to an alveolar epithelial cell from the air sac, they're different, right? But the, so, so these are cells that form the barrier against what we inhale. And are these cells that you described, are they all infected in the same way, or are there striking differences? There is reason to assume that uh, the cells of 
the upper airways, which means the nose, right? That those cells are more susceptible to infection by the SARS-CoV-2 virus than the cells of the lower airways. So there is some indication, and we're also studying that at the moment, um, there's some indication that cells in different parts of the respiratory tract have a different sensitivity, going from very high up in the nose to relatively low in the air sacs. And is that directly linked to that receptor protein where the virus attaches to, or are there other reasons? Yeah, it, 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 it's partly linked certainly to that receptor protein, the ACE2 molecule, uh, because there's a lot of indication that the expression of that molecule is highest in the uh, nasal mucosa, in the nasal epithelial cells that are part of that nasal mucosa. Uh, and uh, But it's probably not the only thing. So you cannot simply say, well, I looked at this receptor and then I know everything about infection uh, of that cell type by, uh, the, uh, by the virus. We're successful in raising a grant to uh, do fundamental research uh, on, on the COVID-19. Um, what questions are you actually addressing? What would you like to study in this grant? Yes, basically, we have four main questions, right? We focus on these epithelial cells. So that's, that's, that's the, the overlying issue. We focus on these epithelial cells because these are the cells that get, get infected. And then there's a number of questions. The first question we want to answer, what is the difference in the response of the epithelial cells from the upper airways compared to the lower airways in the air sacs to the virus, right? So we're interested to see not only how does it infect and how does it multiply, but also what is the response of this epithelial cell to the virus? Because that may be important to understanding defense against the virus, but also establishment of the disease. Second thing we want to know is what is so specific about the response of the epithelial cells to this specific coronavirus? So we want to compare the response to SARS-CoV-2 infection to infection with the other viruses. Then we want to understand more about what is so special about uh, the epithelial cells of the patients that contracted COVID-19? Do they respond differently? And finally, we're very interested in sort of the long-term effects uh, of, of COVID-19. We want to know whether the scarring that we see in the patient that may cause these long-term effects, is that really, yeah, just a response to, uh, to, uh, um, to extensive injury caused by your own response to the virus, or is there also a virus-specific compound? And we think that studying this, and, and in all these studies, we use culture models, so we use animal-free research with human cells, and we think that that is relevant because that allows it, us to, for instance, test already present uh, uh, available medication against these scarring issues, uh, and to maybe uh, uh, help uh, in the process of identifying uh, novel treatments. That is urgently needed. I mean, there's an urgent need for treatment of the long-term effects of, uh, of COVID-19. Good are your model systems. How, how can you make the transfer from the model to the real situation in the patient? Systems are never, I mean, they're never like fully developed, right? Uh, they're on the way to full development, but they're never mimicking the whole body. But the nice thing about this chip is that it includes some very specific effects of, uh, of the lung. First of all, chips, and that is not only for the lung uh, the case, but chips have the advantage that you use microfluidics, which means that you feed 
your cells with a continuous supply of new nutrients and growth factors, and you remove waste products all the time, just like our, our, uh, our bloodstream does, right? So that is not specific for a chip of the lung. But what is very nice about this chip is that we can introduce also airflow across the epithelial cells, just like in the lung. And what we can also do is we can stretch these cells repeatedly, like what you what like the effect that you get when you breathe. When you breathe, you have a continuous stretch of your cells, and then they go back to the normal length again. And that is really something that we are beginning to discover, it's called the field of mechanobiology, that really impacts on the function of the cells. And we think that that may be important to try and understand this scarring process. Let me see if I understand this correctly. I'm not a, a, a biologist as you two are, and I'm not a specialist by far, but so as I'm understanding this correctly, you're creating a chip that is replicating the lungs on a very small scale that it, it breathes like it stretches the cells as, as a lung would do but it also you're you're able to uh, get an airflow through this chip so you can really simulate what human lungs are doing and then you're testing on that chip am i understanding that correctly that is right i mean this is a system that uh, um, is developed in our lab by uh, Anna van der Does, and she's a researcher in the lab who um, had an EU uh, grant to work in the US for a year to develop this model uh, and, and to study uh, and learn how to work with the equipment. And after that year, she returned to our lab and, uh, uh, and got the equipment over. So this is the system that we have now running in the lab. Yeah. There's then you read out, Peter. Um, how do you know? That the infection is serious or less serious? Can you can you can you measure the capacity in these uh, uh, in these lung models or the stretchability or whatever? Yeah. So what so what we do is, uh, uh, for instance, uh, in, in part of the uh, questions where we infect the epithelial cells with the virus, we look, of course, at. Uh, the replication of the virus. And of course, this is something we do with our colleagues at the molecular virology, the medical microbiology department, because those people are really experts in, in coronavirus biology. And, and, and so what our specialty is to look at the epithelial side of things. So we look at how do these cells respond? So we look at which genes are turned on, which products are they making, right? And for instance, when we look at uh, the, the scarring process, we look at markers of scarring. So we try to see, so, so there's some specific products that cells start to make in the initial phases of the scarring process. And we try to detect those as a marker for scarring. I'm a bit confused about what a marker is. Yeah, so what a, what a marker is, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of, sort of a footprint of a process. So we're looking at uh, what is the cell doing uh, that is uh, sort of part of the process of turning a normal tissue into a scar tissue, sorry. So, and in fact, scarring is, of course, we all know it from our skin. So if we get an injury, normally it repairs very nicely. In very young kids, remarkably, very often it use, usually repairs without any scars, right? And, and, and sometimes you, you get a scar. And so what you see is basically is that the normal tissue is taken over by scarring tissue, right? And um, so, so we know quite a bit about that process in various parts of the body, inclu including the lung. So we know what type of things to look for. 
and uh, so that's what we're doing. So, so we're looking at the markers of the process of scarring to try and see, uh, because we don't develop a full scar in a model because that takes a very long time to, to develop, but we really look at early markers. So it's important to realize that we, we not only look at which products are being made or which genes are turned on, but we also look at how the cell looks like. So we use microscopic techniques with our colleagues at the different departments at the uh, LUMC to try and see what are the so-called morphological changes. So how does their appearance change as a result of the process? This, this fundamental research, of course, is completely different from all those people that try to develop a vaccine before the end of the year and cure the patients. But I'm still asking you the question. If you know more about the molecular processes that are going on, can you imagine that this molecular knowledge, knowledge about markers, that that eventually could also be a target for therapy? Oh yeah, I, I think that understanding the mechanism and understanding the response of our body to the virus is really instrumental in trying to develop novel therapies. And I think that that is, that is uh, one of the important ways uh, and routes that you can follow in order to develop a new treatment. And um, so, but also in addition to that, I think that those models are important in order to evaluate the effects of potential medication that we have already used, for instance, to treat other forms of fibrosis, to try and see, does it also happen? Does it also inhibit the initial form of fibrosis, of scarring that we see in our chip, for instance? And this may be a first step before you try it in a patient. So it's important, I think, to test existing therapies, but it's also important to try and develop what we call novel targets for therapy. Uh, and you need a target, you need something that you want to pinpoint in, on in your new therapy in order to develop a new therapy. Absolutely agreed. So I hear a silver lining in this whole COVID uh, pandemic is that we're learning so much about scarring of the lungs that this could help us in future pandemics, but also in uh, questions about scarring that are going on right now. Because uh, scarring is the result of a lot of different processes. So for instance, radiation can cause scarring. Um, uh, so apparently viruses can cause uh, scarring. So we need to understand the what is sort of the convergent route. So the endpoint formation of the scar and what are the routes towards formation of that scar? And that learns us more about how to interfere with the formation of the scar, but also importantly, what can we do once the scar has occurred, right? Because uh, of course it's great to find medication that fully prevents it, but you also want something that resolves the problem once the problem has occurred. And I think, that doing this type of research is important also to try and understand scarring of the lung, which is independent of COVID-19. One more question about that, because if I scrape my knee, I get a scar and, and my knee functions quite well, actually. So why is it such a problem that I have a scar in my lung? That depends a little bit on how you define a scar. Uh, so is it, the question is, is it the extent of scarring in the lung that uh, uh, causes it to be irreversible? 
right? So maybe you have small scars occurring all the time that resolve, right? That is that is one possibility. But inter interestingly, what we know about scarring of the lung in general, it starts sort of in the periphery of the lung, right? So, uh, and in the periphery of the lung, uh, that's probably the areas where we think the stretch is highest. You can imagine if you have a big balloon, you have a lot of stretch on the outside. One more question I would love to ask you is you're working with live corona, uh, with the live coronavirus. You're, you're working with very contagious samples. Uh, isn't that dangerous? Um, well, we're very lucky in the LMC to really have the top experts uh, in this area uh, around. So these are uh, the people of the, of the group of Erik Schneider, and we work with Martijn van, van Hemert uh, and Peter Bredebeek and his team. And so what they have developed uh, already years is a very special lab where a lot of safety precautions are taken to really prevent the effects on the person who does the experiments, but also prevents the spread of the virus from that very specific laboratory. And that is so essential. I mean, this is a type of research that you could never do alone as a pulmonology group. So we work together with several departments. We work together with the intensive care to get the samples. We work together with the uh, cellular and, and uh, with the uh, chemical and cell uh, uh, biology department, with the medical microbiology, with the uh, parasitology department. So it's really multidisciplinary research that allows us to do these types of investigations. And that is, I think, very important. And it's great to see how such things come together in a relatively sh short period. And whether it's six months before we're back to more uh, normal or 12 months, that's very difficult. It's gonna be a gradual process, that's for sure.